Good morning. Good to see you all here. When I was buttoning up my shirt this morning, I was thinking about the days when I worked at College Church in Wheaton, Illinois, and was required to wear a suit and a white shirt every Sunday morning. And I'd been there for about 10 years before I finally approached my boss and I asked him, I said, hey, um, do you think I could wear a colored shirt on Sunday morning or even just a blazer and some slacks? And he said, well, let me think about it. So I came back a few days later and I said, well, did you think about it? And he said, yeah, I did. I said, well, what's the answer? And he said, no. <laughs> so suit, white shirt, all those years. So, man, I'm feeling free and easy in my autumnal colors this morning. Hey, to be clear, men, uh, the breakfast is on November 5, but that's not this Saturday. It's a week from Saturday. So um, that's November 5, a week from Saturday. And uh, we prayed for Mary and Warren Willis this morning, who are seated right there in the second row. Good to have them from Dallas. And if you want to get jacked up when it comes to your faith or evangelism, talk to the Willises and by the end of that conversation, Warren may have you sign up to start Decision Point in Atlanta, which I think is the next uh, target city. So here he, here he goes. Yeah, no, I'm not. But there are plenty out here. Um, you know, as we approach a season of Thanksgiving, we have a lot of things for which to be thankful. We have strong uh, programs for men and women, uh, for students, for children. But one of the things for which we can be especially thankful is that over the last two years, the children's ministry team, which is comprised of Susan Sanders and uh, Melanie Floyd and Mindy Klancic and Ruth Ann Downing, have not only maintained a ministry during some very challenging times, but they have even advanced that ministry uh, in any one of a number of ways. I think of all the different online offerings, uh, the drive-through events for families, the uh, mobile library that click clickety-clacks its way around campus. I saw it this morning down below uh, at the C buildings and so much more. And so what the elders would like to do is say, thank you. Thank you, first and foremost, to the Lord uh, by whom all of this has come and then to the ministry team through whom it has all occurred. And so we want to do that by taking a Thanksgiving offering. And we would like uh, that money to go toward replacing the plastic playground equipment on the lower and upper playgrounds with a new, sturdy, colorful, long-lasting commercial-grade equipment um, that we hope will last for years to come. So uh, we believe this is an appropriate way to thank the Lord for his goodness to our Grace family and especially uh, for this ministry team. And you'll be hearing more about it in the days and the weeks to come. So uh, just know that that's on the on the horizon. 
Well, this morning we find ourselves smack dab in the middle of a five-part preaching series dedicated to answering a couple of questions. Question number one, what is the church? And we're summing up the answer to that question in five ways, each of which is portrayed by an image on the front of your bulletin this morning. So we're looking at church as temple, as uh, uh, home, as uh, school, there we go, as hospital, and as barracks or base. Second, we're answering the question, what happens when we gather in each of these five ways? And that's why we've entitled, as Walt pointed out at the beginning of our morning, this series, Gather. And so far, here's what we've learned. We gather as temple to worship. Now, in Old Testament days, that happened in a place. But in New Testament days, which are our days, that happens among a people. Uh, The former was a local thing. It happened in Israel. The latter is a universal thing that takes place wherever God's people come together. Then in week two, which was last week, we learned that we gather as home or family. Now, in Old Testament days, uh, God's family was related to Israel, right? The children of Israel, formerly known as Jacob. But in New Testament days, the family is related to the greater Jacob, Jacob's multiple great-grandson, Jesus, in whom we have a brother who sticks closer to us than our own blood-related brothers, who promises to never leave us or forsake us, who binds us together with cords of love and comfort and security. Now, if you've noticed nothing else in this series so far, I hope that you have at least noticed this. These static brick-and-mortar images on the cover of the bulletin really portray vibrant realities. That is to say, when we gather to worship, we don't do so in a temple. We do so as the temple which is comprised of living stones, the cornerstone of which is Jesus Christ himself, 1 Peter 2, verses 5 and 7. And when we gather as a household, the emphasis is not on the house, but rather on those it holds, the family. You see, the gathered church is not a, it's not a, a rigid, uh, static, unbending organization. No, rather, the gathered church is a supple, dynamic, and energy, uh, energetic organism. It's not a dead thing. It's a living thing. So as we come to church as school, the liability is that we'll think about it as it's portrayed there on the bulletin cover, as a schoolhouse with a bell on top. But that's not what it is. And yet, if... If there's a group that's most prone to think that way, it's us, evangelicals. And here's why. Because evangelicals place an emphasis on school. 
Uh, Evangelicals have been at the cutting edge of our English-speaking universities going centuries back. Here in America, beginning with Harvard and Yale and Princeton, all of which were evangelical enterprises, uh, right down to our present day with Biola and Westmont and Vanguard. Evangelicals even came up with the idea and promoted Sunday school for children, beginning first in the UK and then uh, here in the U.S., Moreover, evangelicals place a great emphasis on teaching, on teaching. Unlike other churches that make room for a five to 10 minute Sunday morning meditation or homily, some of you may have been a part of a church like that at one time. Evangelicals prioritize 30 to 40 minutes on Sunday morning for a sermon or an exposition of scripture. And if you're like I am, then you've spent most of your life coming back for more on Sunday night. And Wednesday night as well. So again, if there's a group that's prone to think of church as school, it's a building with a bell on top, it's us right here at Grace. Now, even if we unwittingly think of ourselves in that way, here's what can happen. These are the liabilities. Church can become cerebral, right? Now, we know that we're more than what's between our ears, but if we focus on that, it's to the exclusion of our hearts, our emotions, and our hands, what we do throughout the week, our whole person. Further, if we think of grace as a schoolhouse with a bell on top, then church becomes impersonal. And that's just as true for the preacher as it is for the people. A great 19th century preacher, D.L. Moody, of whom you've no doubt heard, was invited to sit under the preaching of an upstart preacher. And after the sermon, he asked him two questions. The first question was this, you love to preach, don't you? And the guy said, oh yeah, man, I love to preach. I love to preach. His second question was more telling. He asked, Do you love the people you preach to? You see, if a preacher doesn't love the people to whom he's preaching, then he's just using them. And it can be obvious. Because preaching is a two-way street. It's personal. It's relational. But just as that transaction is preacher to people, it's also people to preacher by way of active listening. And you're great active listeners because you not only use your ears, but your eyes and even your body language, the way you position yourself in your chair. Uh, My fellow preachers and I uh, really appreciate when you do this because some of you I know sit in places where you think you can't be seen. We see you all. In fact, in meetings, sometimes when a name comes up and another person may not know who that person is, oh yeah, that, you know, they always sit in this section and that row toward the back, toward the front. Oh yeah, I know who that is. So if church ever becomes for you like a school, you know, where you show up to class, you listen to the lecture, you skedaddle as soon as it's over, then it is guaranteed to be an impersonal experience. Finally, if we only think of grace like a schoolhouse with a bell on top, 
then church becomes impractical. Uh, I recently had coffee with a counterpart who ministers at a church up in uh, Valencia. And uh, he said he grew up in a network of churches that really succeeded in expositional preaching, but uh, struggled with application. You know, putting handles on the sermon, making it practical to everyday life. So he wrote a doctoral dissertation, tried to get to the bottom of the problem, and in the process he came to the following conclusion, and, and I quote, Preaching must be the fuel that ignites the engine of biblical one another's. In turn, the one another's must be practiced in response to the Sunday sermon. So the bottom line is this. Preaching can't begin and end in the pulpit. It's not all about this little piece of real estate right here. Rather, it's got to make a difference in the lives of Everybody in the room, everybody who's listening. So, if the liability of considering church as school is to do so as a building with the bell on top, then what's, what's the lesson for us? How are we to think of it? And the lesson is this. When we gather, our learning mustn't be atomistic or, or reductionistic. That is to say, all about the sermon all about the Sunday school lesson. No, rather, when we gather, our learning needs to be holistic, uh, informational to be sure, but also relational as well. So when we gather to learn, when we gather as school, we gather not only to learn about Christ, but we gather to learn Christ. That's the way Paul put it to the Ephesians. Not only what he is, but who he is, that we might grow in Christ's likeness and as such in service to one another. Which begs the question, how do we learn Christ in a holistic sort of way? Well, we do so by, as we're doing this morning, gathering around his word, that's one thing, by gathering in his spirit, And then by gathering as his people. Those are the three things at which we're going to look this morning. Gathering around the word of Christ, in the spirit of Christ, and as the people of Christ. So first, we learn Christ by gathering around his word. Learning Christ in community from his word is important. And it happens um, basically in two ways. First, it happens formally. We gather formally. That's what we're doing here this morning. Acts 2.42 tells us that the early church formally gathered to devote themselves first and foremost to the apostles' teaching, then to fellowship, then to the breaking of the bread, and then to prayers. You can't overestimate the value of this formal gathering in person, around God's word. It's something for which there's no substitute at all, period. And I would imagine that anybody that's watching online this morning wishes that instead of looking in, as it were, through the glass, you were here with us. Well, 
Second, we not only gather formally, but we do so informally. In the Old Testament, Moses prescribed that God's word be informally taught throughout the course of any day. Sitting in your house and when you're walking by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 11. Then in the New Testament, Jesus exemplified that manner of informal teaching uh, by way of his own life. So we see him teaching while he's sitting in a house, Luke 5. Walking down a road, Luke 6. Late at night, Mark chapter 6. Early in the morning, Luke 21. So whenever we gather together, be it formal or informal, God's word needs to be at the the heart of it. That's why when it comes to formal, a formal gathering like this one, Martin Luther placed a priority on the pulpit over the communion table. In fact, he put it this way, we can spare everything except the word. Uh, in fact, Luther was asked to write uh, an evangelical liturgy and he worked on one and he worked on another and finally he said, you know, it really doesn't matter in what order you uh, conduct a meeting like this just so long as the word is right in the middle. So that's why when we gather informally, the scripture needs to inform everything we do, formally, informally. Grace group, retreats, committee meetings, conferences. But why? why? Why does the Word of God need to be at the center of it all? It's because that's where Christ is revealed. That's where he makes himself known. The Word inscripturated, that is the Bible, reveals the Word incarnated who was Christ. All the Messianic promises made in the Old Testament are revealed to have been kept in, in Christ, by Christ, in the New Testament. Jesus said that the law and the Psalms and the prophets revealed him. So we gather around the word because that's where Christ is revealed. That's where he's seen. And that's how we came to faith. I came to faith by way of the word. You came to faith by way of the word. Anyone who has not yet come to faith will come to faith by way of the word because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Romans 10, 17. Not only that, we gather around the word of Christ because that's how we grow in faith. Such that we're no longer conformed or pressed into the mold of this world, but transformed by the renewal of our minds. Romans 12, 1 and 2. And such that grace and peace are multiplied to us in the knowledge of God in Christ. Finally, we gather around the word of Christ because that's how we're established in our faith. I've always, I've always been intrigued by 1 Peter and 2 Peter, the purpose of both letters being to stir up the memories of Peter's readers so that they could remember and stand firm in the predictions of the holy prophets, that's the Old Testament, and the commandments of the Lord and Savior through the apostles. That's the New Testament. To remember the Bible and what's in it. Since through that knowledge, Peter goes on to say, we have all things that pertain to life 
and godliness. Those are good reasons to gather around God's word. But if we stop there, that's when we run the risk of start seeming like a school with a a bell on top. And that's why we not only learn Christ by gathering around his word, but we learn Christ by gathering in his spirit. Now, there's a common error, and the error is this, is to think that there are two kinds of churches. There are those that learn Christ according to the word, which means that they either downplay or ignore the Spirit altogether. And then there are those that learn Christ by His Spirit, which means that they downplay and ignore or ignore the Word altogether. But the fact of the matter is this. There's only one kind of church. There's only one kind of church, and it learns Christ by gathering around His Word and in His Spirit. Now, I've mentioned this before, but it it bears repeating, especially since it makes this point. The Word of God is inextricably coupled with the Spirit of God. They're hand in glove. They're two sides of the same coin. The Hebrew word ruah and the Greek word pneuma, both of which mean wind or, or breath, are used for the name Holy Spirit. So in Ezekiel 37, the wind of the Spirit enlivens the valley of dry bones. While in Acts chapter 2, the wind of the Spirit enlivens the hearts of those gathered at Pentecost. And and on both occasions, that life-giving word of the wind of the Spirit is indivisibly linked to the life-giving ministry of the Word. They're both paired together in each of those passages. You can check it out for yourself. Old Testament scholar John Woodhouse asserts that in biblical thought, the Spirit of God is as closely connected to the Word of God as breath is connected to speech. You can't have one without the other. So you can't have a church that's emphasizing the word without it also having a meaningful ministry of the spirit. Nor can you have a church that is emphasizing the spirit without it also having a meaningful ministry of the word. That dynamic union between word and spirit is why faithful preaching and teaching, and when I say that I mean uh, uh, the content of which rises off the page of the scripture, is so crucial for that spiritual transformation and growth in godliness. Further, that union between word and spirit is why Jonathan Griffiths asserts this. If it is the word of God that the preachers preach, and when I say that, I mean not only preaching in this fashion, but sitting across the table at Starbucks and and proclaiming the gospel to somebody who may not know it, even in that way, that's preaching. If it is the word of God that preachers preach, then insofar as they are saying what the Bible passage is saying, it follows that God is speaking and his voice is heard. Finally, that union between word and spirit is why we need to remember that 
the sword of the Spirit is, in fact, the Word of God, right? Ephesians chapter 6. It's the tool that the Spirit uses to hack and whack his way through the weeds to get to our heart, to, to lance the boils that infect our souls, to remove the spiritual cancers caused by the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the boastful pride of life. So we learn Christ by gathering around his word in his spirit, the spirit who not only lives in us, right? Christ in us, the hope of glory, Colossians 1.27, but also the spirit who unites us. The unity, Paul tells us, that we need to eagerly preserve, Ephesians 4.3, especially since our unity strengthens our identity, which takes us to the last point here. We learn Christ by gathering as his people, And we are his people in a number of ways. To begin, we are the body of Christ. Romans 12, 5. One body, members of one another, more closely related to each other in Christ than we are related to members of our own blood family who don't know Jesus. And that's a fact. Together, we have the mind of Christ. 1 Corinthians 2, 16. Think about this. That is not something for which you need to pray. Christ, we need your mind. No, we have the mind of Christ. The mind of Christ, rather, is something in which we need to grow by the word of Christ, the people of Christ, and the spirit of Christ because together we are also the temple or the dwelling of Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 and 17 says this. Do you not know that you, and that's plural, all of us here, are God's temple. And that God's spirit dwells in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, I'll add by way of dissension or division or false doctrine or anything of the like, then God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. So as we gather together, to learn Christ, we become better suited to live in his likeness, to walk like him, to serve like him, to suffer like him, even to die like him, which was so beautifully exemplified for us in recent years. Some of us were recalling Kim Lee, who in her extremity spoke to us, you may remember from these screens, uh, Wally Robbins, uh, Dave Koontz. Just as strengthening our unity strengthens our identity, the opposite is true as well. Strengthening our identity in Christ helps us to be further unified in Christ. Before um, we moved out here to Southern California, I was the campus pastor at Taylor University in Upland, Indiana. Now, um, unlike most colleges in Indiana, which are rather provincial, uh, Taylor is, is truly cosmopolitan. It's a lot more like Notre Dame or uh, Indiana University than, say, uh, Franklin or Hanover. Um, Franklin and Hanover may not appreciate that, but uh, it's true. 
The Taylor student body is comprised of men and women from uh, just about all 50 states, uh, 20 to 30 countries of the world, who are housed in any one of about eight residence halls, each one with its own culture, and then every floor and wing with its own subculture. And Taylor students uh, generally don't move off campus. They stay in their halls. In fact, they stay in their very same rooms all four years, which means that with every year, they become more and more enculturated. In fact, I probably met only a half dozen Taylor students who suffered from senioritis because they were so happy living in their little cultures and subcultures. They didn't want to leave when it was all over. In fact, they were so much this way, they only dined with members from their own floor. They only sat in chapel with members from their own floor. So that's diversity. And so then the question for me as a campus pastor is what what could I give them in chapel? This highly diverse group that would unify them as a student body. And that leads to another question. What were they doing there at Taylor to begin with? I mean, they could have been in a state university with more money and better facilities and nicer amenities. And they were probably a tailor for the same reason that you Biola students came to Biola. Because you wanted to grow in your relationship with Christ. You're not going to get that, in Indiana at least, at Purdue or IUPUI or any one of the state schools. And that's why my aim in chapel was to give them Christ. To give them Christ by gathering around his word and in his spirit and as his people in order to strengthen their corporate unity as well as their corporate identity. That's how it happens. And it's much easier to explore our diversity once you're secure in your unity. And that's no less the case here at Grace. If we do that one thing, if we learn Christ, as Paul instructed the Philippians to do, glory in Christ, rejoice in Christ, agree in Christ, stand firm in Christ, be encouraged in Christ, be confident in Christ, receive others in Christ, press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ. If we do that one thing, then like Paul, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. So, when we gather, let's learn Christ. Not in a reductionistic way, thinking of the church like a schoolhouse with a bell on top, but rather in a holistic way, one that's not only informational, but relational as we gather around Christ's word, as we gather in his spirit and as his people. And in that way, we're going to grow on Christ-likeness in terms of who we are as well as what we do. So as we land the plane this morning, I just have a, a question for you. How are you doing? How are you doing in learning Christ Are you learning Christ by engaging with his word in the spirit as it's preached and taught, readily listening, intently watching, actively responding by maybe taking notes 
in a sermon notebook or a scripture journal or the, the blank page in the uh, bulletin that's, that's handed to you. I, you don't have to do it that way. There was a season in my life where I realized I listened better when I didn't take notes. Because <laughs> then I could be fully present in the moment with whatever was being said rather than always trying to catch up. But are you engaging? Are you learning Christ by engaging with his people and in the Spirit? On Sunday morning, greeting those with whom you're worshiping. We did that uh, in the middle of our time together, but there's no reason why you can't do it afterwards as well. Getting to know others as you yourself wish to be known by them. Making grace something more than a morning stop on your way to lunch or uh, the beach or the ballpark. Maybe making grace your morning. Are you learning Christ by engaging with his people even on Sunday afternoon or another day of the week at a grace group or some other small group gathering? As you gather, as we gather and learn Christ in these ways, I guarantee you, you will never find church to be cerebral or impersonal or impractical. May that be true for all of us. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we ask that you'd help us to learn Christ by thoughtfully gathering around his word and his spirit and as his people. And as we're faithful to do so, Lord, may we look more and more like Jesus for the strengthening and the benefit of one another as well as the advancement of his kingdom in our community and throughout the world. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.